Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran, a ministry of Worship Generation Church in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. So tonight we are going to be picking up topically in 1 Kings chapter 10, and we're wrapping up our look at the life of Solomon. We'll be moving on from Solomon after tonight on to the divided kingdom with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So Solomon is that third great king of Israel. Solomon was the first king, excuse me, Saul was the first king, not a good king. David replaced him, great king, human flaws, but the one that God called and anointed. And then Solomon, his son, became king. And Solomon stepped into eternity after about 60 years. So he lived for 60 years, came to the throne probably around 20. And in 40 years, it's hard to match the efficiency and the legacy of how much he did in the human experience, building the temple, all the other buildings he did, the kingdom he expanded. By any account of how you measure an earthly king, he was without a doubt one of the most prolific and greatest kings that ever lived from an administrative, military economic and wisdom point of view. So that's Solomon. We've been looking at him. We've been learning a lot from him. And of course, he his greatest legacy is he built the temple of God that his dad David had the vision for and the heart for. He built it and then he fulfilled it. But after he built it, we're told in the previous chapter that he kind of, it says he did everything he accomplished in his heart that his heart wanted to do. So that was pretty amazing. Okay, so he did everything he wanted to do in his heart. But then like, he's it. What's he going to do after that? And that's where he really got into trouble. We know that Solomon drifted greatly after he built the temple and had done all these things. And what ended up happening is he just meandered. And the chapter after chapter 10 tonight, Solomon, we're told that he multiplied wives. He multiplied pagan wives. So that's his great downfall. He, he, multipl- he went for the wrong women and he went for lots of them. You know, that just, and he's not the first or the last to do that. And the same with women and guys as well. So that was what he did. Those are the choices he made. And that was how on the back end of his life, he didn't finish strong at all. And the, the women led him astray. And so he built altars to their false gods, Molech and Asterisk and all these things. And it's a, it's a, it's a bad final. It's a bad, it's a sad ending for Solomon, the way it ended. It is. But in the overview of his life and ministry in chapter 10, we get a very famous story that when the Queen of Sheba came to visit him. So this is like at the zenith of his ministry where he was just rolling as this, this global economic juggernaut, like the guys that run the world right now, like that kind of a guy. He had it all going. And the Queen of Sheba came to visit him, and it's a fascinating story, and we're going to look at this tonight. And back in the book of Judges, we compared... We compared a Samson to Jesus because they're both Nazarites. Remember that? We did the Samson-Jesus comparison. It's like, wow, it's not kind of, it's pretty unfair for Samson, but we did it. And tonight we're going to do the Solomon-Jesus comparison because Jesus compares himself to Solomon. So I'm not forcing it. Jesus did it. So chapter 10, verse 1. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. 
She came to Jerusalem with a very unique retune, with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all of her questions. And there was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the servants of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers, and his entryway by which she went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. She's just blown away. This is the cover of every magazine, right? It's apparel, it's home improvements, you know, it's, you know, it's just, it's like it's every magazine that the rich and famous like. It's all right there describing what she saw. Uh, employee, employer relations, oh, it's everything. Plus, he had the ships with all the gold, he had his own private zoo, he had all this stuff. She is completely blown away. And so we read on in verse 6. We read, Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes, and indeed the half of it was not told me, your wisdom and the prosperity exceeds the fame which I heard. Happy are your men, and happy are those your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever, therefore he's made you king to do justice and righteousness." What a great segment of scripture. It, it, really, if you think about it, it's, it's, it should get your attention. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus was going at it with the religious leaders because they went at it with him and vice versa. And they had rejected him. He'd done so many signs and they're requesting more signs. And they said, you know, we want to see a sign from you. And there in Matthew 12, verse 39, Jesus said this to these scribes and Pharisees that had rejected him. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men in Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Ooh, see, that's our key right there. A greater than Solomon is here. Jesus compares himself to Solomon and says a greater than Solomon is here. Now, an interesting connection between Solomon, the Queen of Sheba, in Jerusalem, Jesus, the religious leaders, and the church in Jerusalem, is in the case of Solomon, this Gentile, that's a non-Jew, she came from the farthest place of the earth, Jesus said, from far corners, wherever she came from, it was a distance, most considered to be modern Yemen is where she came from, but she came, and she came seeking, she's kind of like that we don't use the term so much anymore. About 20 years ago, it was really popular in the church to say, oh, they're seekers. So you had seeker-sensitive churches. Services designed for seekers, not really to build up the saints, right? That kind of came and went. But the idea of a seeker is an interesting one because people say, well, like, I'm a seeker. And, you know, people go to Tibet to climb and talk to monks because they're seekers, something like that, right? The idea is like, you're seeking truth. I'm a, I'm a truth seeker. But David, Solomon's dad, led by the Holy Spirit, said, there's none who seeks after the Lord, no, not not any. So the idea that you just wake up on your own and say, oh, I'm seeking truth, 
is actually foreign to the Bible because not only did David say it, but the Holy Spirit says it through Paul the Apostle in the book of Romans, that no one seeks after God. We're born in rebellion to God as sinners, and there's nothing in us that moves us toward God. We move toward religion because, as Solomon said, God has put eternity in our hearts. Yes, that is true, Ecclesiastes 3. But to find the truth, we really need the Holy Spirit who reveals all truths to us and directs us toward Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would be with the world to point people who don't, people who are perishing, the world. That the Holy Spirit's going to point people to Jesus as their Savior. And he's with the world to point them. And he brings them, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would bring them under conviction. He will convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, which are actually terms that we saw even in the text tonight. So, in the case of the Queen of Sheba, she's a seeker. And she came to see if these things were true, as she'd heard and she came to see, and she was blown away, and she says, it wasn't half what I heard, is, is this more, not even, what I heard was half of even what it is. It, it exceeded what I heard. The hype, the hype was bigger than actually what came to pass, which is usually pretty rare in the human experience. So this Gentile woman outside the covenant, because remember, Israel's in the covenant with God. God had a plan for Israel to reach the nations and to minister to the nations and even invite the nations to be a part of the feast and the faith. But they never saw it that way and they never really got it. But here in the story, this woman comes, a Gentile, and before she leaves, she's blessing Jehovah, the Lord of heaven and earth, the God of Israel, the God of covenant, the God who sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. She is blessing him. So obviously in her seeking, the Lord was working we don't really have a confession of faith for her, but really you might put forth a pretty good argument that verse 9 is her confession of faith when she says, blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you. It's like she's almost like a prophet is speaking about what God did through him for him. Or she's blessing Jehovah. So she's not saying, blessed Moloch and Ashtoreth and these guys. She's saying, blessed be Jehovah, which is awesome. Now, what's interesting concerning this with Jesus is, Jesus came to the Jews first, then the Gentiles. And his mission was never really to the Gentiles. And when Gentiles asked him to do something, like the woman that said, even the dogs get the crumbs from the bread, he said, I've come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He still made exceptions for the Gentiles, but ultimately to reach the nations is for the church. So before he ascended to heaven, he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He also said concerning the Great Commission that you will go make disciples of all nations, that you will preach the gospel to every creature. So the ministry of one greater than Solomon being brought to the Gentiles is not that the Gentiles like the Queen of Sheba go to Jerusalem to find out the truth, but the church went forth from Jerusalem to declare the truth, which we are to this day. That right there is a tremendous contrast of just how the kingdom works and how God has worked. But it's a contrast between Solomon and Jesus. Because in Solomon, they came to him to see what he did. But Christ in us, the hope of glory, is we go to them to tell the, the world what he's done for them. See the difference? The distinction of how that works. And the wisdom of Solomon was limited to one person in one location. Jesus said, it's to your advantage I go to the Father, for when the Spirit comes, he will guide you in all truths. And the church can do way more because we're not limited to time, space, and matter as one person, but we can reach all nations and the different ethnicities and interests and dialects that we all have. God uses that to 
make sure that there's a representation of every tongue, tribe, and nation before his throne in glory. So it's not like we're here waiting for the Queen of Sheba to come to us, but we're here going out to the world. That's what the church is. The church is always meant to be built up within, but to have an influence outside the church walls. And so there's a great distinction, but I do find it interesting. You have this king, Gentile comes to him. You have this king, he gives us the keys of the kingdom, and we go to the Gentiles. It's a good contrast. But the contrast really takes off from there, because as you look at this passage, the first thing we'll really draw our attention to, that was the broad scope of it, the panoramic, but the first key point I want to make tonight is in verses 6 and 7, where she said to the king, it was true, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes, and indeed the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame which I heard. So from an earthly perspective, one queen to another king. She understands royalty. She understands wealth, running a country. She understands administration, economics, global stuff. She's smart. And she just goes, wow. Like, he's her peer in a way because he's a monarch. She's a monarch. And she's just completely blown away. Now, as we think about this, we think of Solomon. His words, his wisdom. Because she talks about his words and his wisdom. And her eyes actually seeing what God had done through him and believing because she saw it and she was amazed. Contextually, we need to realize, like, when you look at the pyramids and think that's amazing, or we look at different historical buildings from thousands of years ago that are still standing, we just go like, wow, that's just amazing. But what Solomon did 3,000 years ago is insane. The temple, the wood coming down the Mediterranean from Lebanon, being hauled 60 miles you know, to 3,500 feet elevation, the quarried stones without the sound of tools, being hauled from the quarries, brought to Jerusalem, how they put these things together. I mean, it's just incredible. And then the woods that were used that we saw and overlaid with gold and the artistic design. It is just the architectural achievements are just some of the greatest ever in human history. So she would have just been like, wow. And then she described his throne. Well, the text describes his throne later on this chapter, made of ivory, the 12 lions, all these things. It's just incredible. And then his words. So his wealth and his words and all that God had done for him. It's just, it's, we want to just kind of get this in our mind that he's mind-blowing in time, space, and matter. Like we look at people and go like, ah, man, like, just Fortune 500 people or extremely successful financial people that control the world, like Twitter people, Facebook people, people like that. And they can just do whatever they want and they, they can buy their own rockets and launch them and go have fun in space with their friends. Like, it's like, how, how do people get that smart? How do they make that much money? Like, and we're like, it is impressive. It, it is, it is a, you know, like from a human standpoint, like that's impressive. Rockets aren't cheap. The, the ideas that people can come with and the creativity that they can come up with from their right brain along with the metrics of their left brain and we can do stuff like this. He did it. But then he's got the wisdom. Like this guy, if he lived in our time, he should just have an Instagram and a Facebook where he posts something really smart every day. Like the different Instagrams you get for smart money people. And they'll have Shaq and they'll have Beezer or whatever, these little quotes. And you just go, oh, 
oh, what a nugget, you know. Like he's, he's got 31 chapters where he's going boom, 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 boom. Like it's crazy. There is nothing like the book of Proverbs in human history. It's the holy word of God for practical living. It's amazing. And he wasn't altogether a bad guy. He's a pretty fair guy. And you're like, well, for a really smart guy, he does stupid things. He chooses the wrong women and lots of them. So you're like, he's not that smart, you know, but like, he, so you feel like relatable to him. Like, yeah, he's smart, but he's not that smart. He, he, he had that wisdom and, and all this stuff. So you'd be like, wow. So now, from a worldly perspective, you're just blown away by Solomon. But let's think about Jesus. Let's think about Jesus. And actually, you can take all these incredible people on planet Earth right now that we think are really smart, great, brilliant, and beautiful, and all that kind of stuff. Let's put them next to Jesus. Let's think about Jesus. The words of Jesus. There's a reason the Bible is the most read book in human history. And there's a reason you can get lots of Bibles with red letter edition. And there's a reason when you go to Catholic Mass, they only read from the Gospels as their main sermon. And it's the red letters. It's the words of Jesus. Now, I believe all the words equally. And I believe the Song of Solomon is just as important as the Gospels, the whole counsel of God. But I understand why they would do that. The red letters. There are denominations that put a greater emphasis on red letters than black letters in your Bible with the red letter Bible. Because the words of Jesus are incredible. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon. He took the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and he's expounded it for all humanity, how it's truly to be applied in God's grace for every generation until Jesus comes back in glory. How he treated the woman caught in adultery. How he treated the harlot when she cried at his feet and wiped his feet with her tears. How he treated the desperate man whose son throws himself in the fire in his seizures. How he treated the crazy men naked in the tombs, you know, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. How he dealt with people one-on-one. How he ministered to a multitude. How he spoke to Peter, John, and James. How he spoke to the twelve. How he sent out the seventy. The words of Jesus are unparalleled and unmatched. Yesterday, I went for a walk with my wife at the beach. We park over there by 17th Street in Huntington. And we walk a block and then cross that, that light that you have there. You know, go PCH. A lot of locals live in those, you know, those Huntington houses, like three stories high and super narrow. But there's one that's like a little Buddha thing. Hey, Buddha, what's up? I generally say hi to Buddha when I pass him. Yo, Buddha. There's a dog I say hi to too, so I don't just, hey, the dog and Buddha. But uh, I, I thought like, you know, like, the Asian cultures really respect Buddha. And they're really big on Buddha. And I, evidently, you know, there's a book of Buddha. I've seen it in the hotels, the five-star hotels in Japan. And those are words that are pretty important to a lot of people, in fact, millions. Of course, Confucius is the same way. Like, well, the words of Confucius. Muhammad had words that people will blow themselves up over. A lot of people have words that people think are pretty impressive and important. But the words of Jesus are the words of life. He said, you seek the scriptures and in them you think you have life, but they are that which declare me to you. He said his words are life. His life is abundant life. He said he didn't come to cancel the law of God and the Ten Commandments, but he came to fulfill them. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest collection of words in human history, without a doubt. The four Gospels give us the record by the Holy Spirit through the eyewitnesses of the apostles of the words of Jesus. So whatever wisdom Solomon had, it can't touch the words of Jesus. 
Because Solomon went bad in his fourth quarter. And by the way, we're in the fourth quarter of the year. I'm sure you figured that out. But in his fourth quarter, he went from bad to worse. And he fell apart down the stretch. Jesus went from glory to glory. Jesus had his face sent like flint toward Jerusalem to be crucified for our sins. He was fully triumphant on the cross. He finished. That's why he said it's finished what he was sent to do. He was triumphant in rising from the grave. He's triumphant in appearing to the apostles in a physical resurrected body. He's triumphant in ascending to heaven, and he's triumphant in sending the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and he's triumphant in fulfilling every promise of his return. And can I get an amen? amen. So where's Solomon in that? Where's his temple now? I think it's part of the Western Wall, I think. It doesn't matter, because that's not my hope and glory. My future. It's a cool thing to visit when you go to Jerusalem, but I mean, I've been to Solomon's stables. I've been there. I went to Israel once for a week. I saw his stables up there by Megiddo. I'm like, wow, look at this. Jesus is coming on a white horse, and it says King of Kings. The words of Jesus are like his words. And the wisdom of Jesus, let's think about this one. I got bookmarks tonight, so you know I'm serious. The wisdom of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, the church was run into this concept of like Greek wisdom. And the, the, the Greek philosophers looked at Christians like as the village idiots. Like, oh, we're, we've got wisdom and you, you follow a, a dead man that you say is risen. Like all you have to do is look at Acts 17 with Paul preaching on Mars Hill to understand how the Greeks were. So they're in that Corinthian church where the people had given their life to Christ and to go to work and have Mr. Smarty Pants with his idols tell them about the wisdom of the Greek gods, Neptune, Poseidon, same God, different names. But just in that background, this is what Paul said about the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So listen very carefully to this, considering the wisdom, because she said the, the, the word, his words, she marveled at the words and his wisdom. That's what Sheba The Queen of Sheba said about Solomon. So we're looking at the words and wisdom of Jesus. So the wisdom of Jesus could be in his words, and they certainly are there. But the the wisdom of Jesus is the gospel message, which is a lot better than the wisdom Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba. For the message of the cross, verse 18, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written... Quoting the Old Testament, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Mr. Smarty Pants, who sits in judge and jury of everybody, including us. Verse 20, where is the wise and where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. So the cross is foolishness to Mr. and Mrs. Smarty Pants. Okay? And it says, so it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So we're saved by believing. The wisdom of God is unveiled and responded to and initiated and infused and imputed through believing. Verse 22. For the Jews request a sign. (laughs) We just read that text. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
So what is he saying there? He's saying that the gospel is the wisdom of God. The ultimate wisdom of God that goes beyond the book of Proverbs and anything Solomon ever said is that God so loved the world that he gave his son to die on the cross and save us from our sins. And by believing in him, we don't perish. We have everlasting life. That is the ultimate wisdom over the universe. You read 31 chapters of Proverbs. And when you finish with the virtuous woman, say, oh, Lord, that is beautiful. And then go right back to John 3.16. Because ultimately, Proverbs is pointing to John 3.16. Because the ultimate wisdom, one greater than Solomon is here. That's Jesus. And the wisdom of Jesus is, I'm going to die on the cross for your sins. I'm going to rise from the grave for your hope and justification. And I'm going to come live in you by my spirit when I send him from heaven on the day of Pentecost. Until the trumpet sounds and I come back to establish my kingdom on planet Earth. That's the wisdom of Jesus. So obviously that's a much superior wisdom than the wisdom of Solomon. Right? You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com, where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and our church YouTube channel. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. For more information about Pastor Joey personally, you can follow him on his Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and God bless.